You guys can turn back to Philippians. We'll be in it again today. We'll be at the end of chapter 1 in the book of Philippians. So one twenty-seven through 30 is our passage this morning. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are turning 16. So for some of you it's still future. For some of us it's long in the past. I want you to imagine that you're turning 16, you just got your driver's license, and your parents tell you we have a surprise. We are giving you a car for your birthday. How are you going to respond to that gift? Well, it will probably depend on what car they give you. So if it is this, a mid-1970s dented up Ford Pinto, you are probably not going to be very excited. You're, you're not really going to care for that gift because it is so awful. I, if I was given that car, I would not wash it. It would just increase the amount of rust on it and I wouldn't park it in my garage because my bicycle is worth more than that car. And if you're not careful with that car and get rear-ended, it's just going to blow up. And so you're really not going to take good care of that Ford Pinto. But what if the gift they give you instead is this, a brand new Ferrari 488 GTB, sticker price about a quarter million dollars. It's perfect paint, mirror finish, hand-stitched interior, mind-numbingly fast. Now, Let's pause and just reflect. Parents, if you have the money to buy that car for your 16-year-old, please do not. The rest of us drivers do not want you to do that. Your child is just going to end up in prison for speeding. If you really want to give that car away, it would be wiser to find somebody kind of in the middle of their life who loves cars, talks about them all the time, knows how to work on them, maybe around 42 years old. I'm just saying, that might be a wiser choice. You don't give that to a kid, but just hypothetically speaking, imagine that you were given that on your 16th birthday. How would you respond to that gift? Well, if it was me, I would treat it very well. I would wash and wax that car every day. I wouldn't just park it in my garage. I would kick everything else out of the garage and park it right in the middle. If I had to go to HEB, I would be the guy parking at the very back of the lot so no one will ding it and no one would even drink water in that car. I would take incredibly good care of it and And here's the principle. How we treat a gift is based on the value of the gift. If it's a very valuable gift, like it costs a lot of money or took a lot of time or skill to make it, you are going to treat it very, very well. But if the gift you're given looks like somebody grabbed it out of their junk drawer on the way out of the house, you're not really going to treat that well. You're not going to respect that gift or care for it. Well, that's the principle in our passage today that begins in verse 27. The value of a gift determines how we treat it. And so Paul wants to help us focus on the value of the gift we have received in Jesus and then respond appropriately. Because that's where our passage is going to go this morning. The value of a gift determines how you treat it. And so look with me at verse 27. We're actually only going to read the very beginning of the verse, the first line. So look at at verse 27. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we'll pause there. If you're into underlining your Bible, you should underline that. Spoiler alert. That phrase is actually the kind of the title for everything else in the book. The whole rest of the book of Philippians is designed to tell you how to do that one thing. That is an incredibly important phrase, a big idea of everything else in this book. You know it's important because it begins with the word only when they use the word 
only in the Bible. It means, hey, really pay attention to this. If you miss everything else, only don't miss this. This is a crucial idea. You need to pay attention to this. So only conduct yourselves. Now that that verb conduct yourself is actually one word in Greek. It's a really unusual word. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul uses this word. In every other verse in the New Testament where Paul tells you how to live, he tends to use the verb walk, okay, that you should walk in this way. But in this one place out of everywhere else, he uses this word conduct yourself. Literally in Greek, it means be a good citizen, saying only be a good citizen. Now, that's no accident that he uses that verb in this one place, because go back to what we talked about a number of weeks ago. To a person living in Philippi, which is where this book was written to, the city of Philippi, what was your most precious possession in all of life? Your Roman citizenship. Hardly anyone had it in the ancient world. It was incredibly rare. Philippi was a very special city. They were granted Roman citizenship so that when a baby was born in Philippi, that baby was born with full Roman citizenship and all of the outrageous privileges that that citizenship carried. It was the greatest thing to have in the ancient world. It was so great, so amazing, that if you were a child growing up in Philippi, every day you would be reminded to live worthy of that Roman citizenship. Conduct yourself in a manner fitting to this incredible privilege you have. That's what adults in Philippi taught to their kids every day. Conduct yourself as a good Roman citizen. Historians have concluded that to the Philippians, their Roman citizenship was regarded as the single most important thing in life to which the free citizen gave his total allegiance. So the Philippians, this was everything. Conducting yourself as a good citizen, most important thing in life. And Paul agrees with that. But Paul doesn't really care about the Roman citizenship part. He points them to their greater citizenship. We talked about that a few weeks ago. What is our greater citizenship? That we are citizens of heaven. That, that trumps everything else in life. This isn't about your national citizenship. This is about your heavenly citizenship. And Paul is challenging them. Yes, you should conduct yourself as a good citizen, but not of Rome, of, of heaven. That, that's what matters most of all. Conduct yourself as a good citizen of heaven. How do you do that? Well, that's the next part of the phrase. The way that you live as a good citizen of heaven is that you live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word worthy, in Greek, it pictures scales. You know how you have those scales that you put something on one side and you have to balance it out on the other? That's the idea behind that word. You were to balance out kind of the scales of life. You've received something really good. Now balance the scales. Live worthy of that incredible gift. Now what is the gift that they have received? It is the gospel of Christ. Now, you're hearing the word gospel for like the sixth week, seventh week in a row as a center of a sermon. Every single sermon I've taught so far in Philippians has focused on the gospel. I probably sound like a broken record to you that we keep coming back to this idea of the gospel. That's because to Paul, it is the most important thing in life. And so he's going to talk about the gospel all the way through the book. If anyone ever asks you a question about the book of Philippians, just say, gospel. You'll be right nine out of ten times. Because to Paul, it is the most important thing in life. It is the most valuable possession you have. Greatest commodity on earth is the gospel. Now, what is it? Let's review for a moment just to make sure we we understand. Gospel is just a churchy word for good news. 
That's all it means in Greek, literally, good news. So this is the good news about Jesus, is what we mean in the gospel of Christ. So what is the good news about Jesus? Well, a few points. It is that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh to become one of us so that he could live a perfect life for us, die in our place for our sins, and then rise from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that God the Father could offer eternal life to us as a free gift. So the good news about Jesus is that Jesus, the Son of God, lived, died, and rose for you so that you can have eternal life, forgiveness, heaven, all of that as an absolutely free gift. That's the the good news that God has offered us in Jesus. And Paul says that is the most valuable thing in life. That is the most important thing. But, But why? Why is it that that good news about Jesus is the most valuable thing on earth? To answer that question, all you need to do is watch CNN or Fox News for five minutes. That's all. Because what are you going to get in those five minutes? Anger? Hate? Division? Sin? All the time. 24 hours a day. Why? Because that's our world. They're, They're just reflecting our world. We live in a profoundly broken world, full of sin and evil and hatred. And all of the good things that humans try with which to fix all of those problems, none of them can do it. So think about the good things our world offers to fix all of that evil. Things like uh, economics and education and government policies and social work and technology and healthcare advances. Those are all great things. But none of them can fix the profound brokenness of the human race. We have proven that for thousands of years. There is nothing humans can do to fix what ails us. There is only one solution. And that is the gospel. The grace of God offered in the sacrifice of his son. That is the only thing that can fix the brokenness of the human race. That is our only hope. And so Paul says, nothing else matters compared to this. The gospel is the most important, so we're going to repeat it every week because it is the one and only hope of the human race. Paul wants us to understand that the gospel is the only thing ultimately that matters. And that's why we saw about two weeks ago, the passage we were looking at, I talked about how it feels like Paul looks at all of life through gospel-colored glasses. It's like he chose to put on these glasses of the gospel that change how he sees every circumstance and every person and every situation. And so for Paul, what is a good circumstance in life? Well, it's a circumstance that allows him to share the gospel, no matter how painful it is. What is a bad circumstance in life? It's a circumstance that distracts him from sharing the gospel, no matter how pleasant that circumstance is. For Paul, everything came down to the gospel because that is the one and only hope of the human race. It is the one and only thing that truly matters. And so if the gospel is the most valuable commodity on earth, and if you have already received it for free through faith in Jesus, then the basic idea of the rest of your life is trying to live worthy of that incredible gift. That's what life looks like for you. What is your goal? I want to live worthy of the gift I've already received. Paul says that often. 
all the way through the New Testament. It's a common refrain for Paul. This is definitely not the only verse where you're going to see Paul talk about this. Here's another couple examples I could have named more. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling, that's the gospel. The gospel calling you out and saving you. Live worthy of that thing you've received. Then Colossians 1.10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of Jesus, to please him in all respects. That, that's the measure of your life. Do you want to be able to say, I lived a good life? Well, then live worthy of the gospel. Now, at this point, we have to clarify we have, to, we have to make absolutely sure that we understand that living worthy of something does not mean earning something. This is a crucial difference. I, I must make sure you guys understand the difference here. What does it mean to try to earn the gospel? Well, to earn it means that I do good so that I can earn the salvation that God offers me through the gospel. This is a very common view. I would in fact say that a ton, maybe the majority of people who would call themselves Christians in America probably hold this view. They believe in Jesus, but they think that God is good. But ultimately, if you ask them, well, why is God going to let you into heaven? They'll say, well, because I did good stuff. This is why they go to church on Sunday mornings. This is why they give offerings. This is why they help their neighbor. Well, I got to do good. that's That's how I earn the salvation God has offered me through the gospel. There's a problem with that. It is impossible. The Bible is very clear. If you want to earn the salvation the gospel provides, what must you do? You've got to be perfect. It is actually technically possible to do that. There's one guy who did. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one and only person who ever earned eternal life. He earned it. We cannot. Why? Because we're sinners. We've been falling short of perfection from the day we were born. God's standard is perfection. He cannot compromise with sin because he is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. We have been compromising with sin every day of our lives. We we think and we say and we do things that hurt other people and dishonor God. And so if you are trying to earn your way into God's good graces, you need to know without doubt you've already failed. And so have I. We all fail to measure up because God's standard is perfection. There's only one guy who lived up to that standard. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because the one guy who lived up to that standard, he gives you what he earned. That's the point of the gospel. We, often, we think of the gospel often through the lens of the cross. You've got to understand, the cross is only part of the gospel. Remember, there were three parts there. Why is it that you get to go to heaven? Well, it's not only because Jesus died for you, but what else did he do? He lived for you. He lived the perfect life that is required to earn salvation, and he gives it to you. Jesus lived, died, and rose for you. So when you think of coming to Jesus in faith, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, the moment that you trust in Jesus, an exchange happens. You give him something, he gives you something. What do you give to him? All of your sin. And because God stands above time, God takes it out of your life and places it on Jesus 2,000 years ago. He dies for it. But what does Jesus give to you? Perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness that you need that earns eternal life. It is given to you so you do not earn eternal life. You don't earn anything from God. Jesus earned it for you and you receive it as a free gift. So we have to be absolutely clear. We are not earning the gospel. We are not earning eternal life. Instead, we are challenged to live worthy of something we've already received. So think about it this way. The, the verb earn, it looks forward. 
I have to work now to get something later. Worthy looks back. Worthy says, I have already received everything I need. Now let me live in response to that gift. Okay, so worthy, I do good in response to the gift that I have already received in Jesus. If you want to understand what a worthy life looks like, the best thing I know of that you can do is to go either watch the play or movie Les Miserables. So if you've never seen Les Miserables, that is your homework today. There are some great movie adaptations. Get one of them and watch it. It is one of the greatest illustrations of grace anywhere in literature outside the Bible. So if you have seen it, you know that it's about a character named Jean Valjean. And when we meet him, he has just been released from prison where he spent 19 years. He is a convict. No one will open their doors to him. No one will give him a chance until he meets a bishop. Who, who welcomes him into his home. He feeds Valjean, he clothes him, he gives him a room, and Valjean responds to that grace by doing what? By stealing the dude's silverware. He goes, and, he goes and robs him and runs away. Well, Valjean is caught by the police, and they bring him back to the bishop to identify him so that they can put Valjean away in prison forever. And then the bishop does something that surprises everyone. Most of all, Valjean. The bishop says, no, 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 he didn't steal. I gave it all to him, which was not technically true. He covers for Valjean. And then he rebukes Valjean for not taking the candlesticks, these silver candlesticks. They were meant for you too. So this bishop, he sacrifices to show Valjean incredible grace. Valjean did not earn any of that. What he had earned was prison. What he got was grace. And then the rest of the movie, all that happens in like the first five minutes, the whole rest of the movie is how Valjean seeks to live worthy of that incredible gift. That that gift of grace transforms him. I mean, that's a beautiful part of the movie. This gift of grace transforms a hardened criminal into an incredibly good citizen who shows grace and love and mercy to other people. That is what grace does, and that is how God wants us. To respond to this gift he's given you. He's given you something far greater than silver candlesticks. He gave you the life of his own son. So that you could have eternal life as a free gift. And now God challenges you to follow the example of Jean Valjean. And spend the rest of your days trying to live worthy of the gift you've already received. Now to be technically correct. You're never going to live worthy of it in the sense of paying it back. Never going to get there. But the point is to try each and every day to to live worthy, to balance out this incredible gift that we've gotten. So practically speaking, what does this look like? Every day we should be asking ourselves, what can I think and say and do today that is worthy of this incredible gift I've received? That's what this life looks like. How can I make choices today that are worthy of the incredible grace I've received from God through Jesus Christ, his son? So that's the question that the rest of the book is designed to answer. The rest of the book gives you the practical advice, the practical instructions you need to live a life that is worthy of the gospel you've already received. Okay, so Paul begins to answer this question, how do we live worthy of the gospel? He begins his answer in the rest of our passage this morning. So go back to the text. We've only read the very first little bit of it. Let's go ahead and reread all of verse 27. So let's look at verse 27. Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Okay, so the way that you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, the first thing that you must do is stand firm in one spirit. That's kind of the the key phrase. Actually, everything else grammatically that comes next will be built off that. So this is a key idea in life. If you want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, you got to stand firm for Jesus. Okay, so no matter what opposition comes, no matter what hardships come, you stay faithful to Jesus throughout your days. That's the first way to, to be worthy of this, of this gift. You, you keep aligning yourself to Jesus. You cling to Jesus throughout all the trials of this life. You cling to Jesus in one spirit. We're not sure whether that means the Holy Spirit who now fills us or our one common spirit, our one purpose that unites us together. We're not sure which Paul had in mind, but we know that living worthy of the gospel, first, it means you cling to Jesus every day of the rest of your life. You stand fast for him. You stand firm for him. And and as you do that, that leads to the next phrase in the verse. So if you'll stand firm for Jesus, that's going to lead to this next phrase. You're going to strive together for the gospel. Paul says specifically, with one mind, we will strive together for the faith of the gospel. Strive together, that's athletic imagery. In Greek, it pictures a team. So in our context, picture a football team. Everybody has different positions on that team, but everyone is working together towards a common goal, which is to win. Everybody is trying to do that. You are only a success if the whole team wins. Well, Paul picks up that imagery for the church. He says our our goal in life is that all of us work together towards one mission. And what is that mission? The faith of the gospel. That's a fancy churchy way of saying we share the gospel. We tell people about Jesus who don't yet know him. So Paul's challenging us. All of us together, let's unite together. Let's work together to help people find and follow Jesus. Now you've heard me say that every week for a long time now. Because I'm going to say it every week for a long time now. Because that is the only reason God left you on this planet. Everything else you do in life, you'll do better up there. This is the one thing you have to do here. Is to help people find and follow Jesus. And Paul's saying, let's all work together with one mind. Which, one mind in, in the New Testament it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything, with everyone. It's not about that. It means that no matter what things we disagree on, we keep this first. That we are all going to work together to help spread the gospel. The challenge is, there's a lot of things that are less important than the gospel that tend to divide us. When I was a kid, I grew up in a little Bible church about an hour south of here. Great church, really wonderful family. But that church went through a rocky time. And that rocky time was because of a disagreement over the question, where should your kids go to school? It's a really big deal when I was little. And so there was a group that said, your kids should go to public school. And there's a group that said your kids should be homeschooled. And it's really good to think about that. It's really good to research that. Parents, you should arrive at at a decision for your family. You should follow your convictions there. That's all really good. The problem was is that for a while in that little church, the question of how to school your kids became a wedge that divided families from one another. It got so bad there were families that would not talk to other families in the church because they were so angry over the question of where your kids are going to school. That divided them. And that's a tragedy. Why? Because where you send your kids to school is meaningless compared to the gospel. Let's just be honest. God is God. He's going to take care of your kids. Quit worrying about that. What matters most? The gospel. That little church allowed a secondary issue to destroy their unity over the one issue that mattered most. How about today? Well, 
where you send your kids to school doesn't seem to be quite as divisive in our context. What seems to have replaced it in our day and age is politics. So I take my dog for walks in the evenings, and I've noticed um, the yard signs are proliferating in my neighborhood. They're, they're having babies every night. And so there are so many signs out now for Cruz and for Beto. And you know what? That's great. God is actually pleased when his people research the candidates, research the issues, arrive at their own conviction, their own decision. God is actually pleased when you, when you get involved in, with a candidate, when you put out a yard sign. To, that's all fine. What's not okay? When you allow politics to divide you from other believers in the one mission that counts, which is to share the gospel. We need to acknowledge Political opinions are never a litmus test for our faith. It's crucial. Just you got to file this away. I, I hope you believe me on this. There will be godly Christians following their conscience who vote for Beto in this coming election. And there will be godly Christians following their conscience who vote for Cruz in this election. And that is good and that is okay because you know what? It doesn't ultimately matter which of them wins. God is still sovereign and the gospel is still the only hope for mankind. So do not let a secondary issue that cannot change the trajectory of the human race distract you from the one and only thing that can Paul wants to make sure that with one mind, we all agree the gospel comes first and we will allow nothing to divide us from one another. Not politics, not race, not economics, nothing. Because this comes first. So if you want to live worthy of the gospel, you strive together to help people find and follow Jesus. That's the first thing that Paul says as it follows a standing firm, second part of our list. So how else do we live worthy of the gospel? The third thing that Paul tells us is that we are not afraid of persecution. If you want to live worthy of the gospel, then don't be afraid when persecution comes. That's the beginning of verse 28. Look at 28. We're just going to read the very first part. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. His point is that a life that is worthy of the gospel is not intimidated or overwhelmed or afraid when you face persecution for your faith in Jesus. Now, let's talk about the background here for a moment. Who are these opponents in the city of Philippi? Well, the Christians are starting to be persecuted. Who are they being persecuted by? Well, remember we said the most valuable thing to a resident of Philippi was what? Their Roman citizenship. That was granted to them by a guy named Augustus Caesar, the first great Roman emperor. They loved the emperor so much that they actually worshipped him. Emperor worship was the dominant religion in Philippi. They loved Augustus above everyone else. They loved him so much that they integrated his worship into every facet of life. They did not have separation of church and state like we do. Instead, if you want to go into business with someone, if you want to sign a business contract, guess what you both do? Worship the emperor. If you want to go to a public ceremony or just a public event, what do you do? You worship the emperor. Every single part of life in Philippi was dedicated to the worship of the emperor. In fact, the Philippians loved the emperor so much they actually called him our Lord and Savior. That's a problem for Christians because we have a new Lord and Savior. And he says, thou shalt not worship other gods. Idolatry was a big issue. And so for Christians, they could no longer worship the emperor, even though they might like him. Hey, great guy, great politician, whatever. But 
You can't worship him as God because you have a new God. So the Christians stopped worshiping the emperor. But what did that say to the rest of the residents of Philippi? Well, it said you're a rebel. You won't participate in what we do. Not only are you a rebel, you're a threat. Because if the Romans hear about you not worshiping the emperor, they may come strip our citizenship away. And so Christians in Philippi began to be persecuted. And it it started with ridicule and then isolation. Their neighbors wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. And then it started to have an economic impact on them. Because if to sign a business contract, you have to worship the emperor and you're not willing to worship the emperor, what are you going to lose? Business. They lost their jobs. They lost their money. They lost their land. They, They couldn't do anything about that. Eventually, it came to loss of freedom. They were put in jail. Eventually, they lost their lives. So they suffered intense persecution for their faithfulness to Jesus. And the question for us is, man, how do you stand in the midst of that? How do you not surrender? How do you not crater when it costs you everything to follow Jesus? It's hard for us to even imagine what that would be like to lose all your money, all your possessions, your family, your freedom, your life for your allegiance to Jesus. How do you stand firm in the midst of that? That's the rest of our passage. Paul is going to tell them here, this is the truth you need to stand firm when persecution comes. So look with me. Let's pick it back up at the beginning of verse 28. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What Paul is doing here is he's giving them two truths that they need to remember when life gets hard, when persecution comes because of their allegiance to Jesus. They need to remember these two things. First of all, persecution is the norm. It's the end of the passage. Paul says, you've seen it in my life. Now you're seeing it in your life. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was in prison in Rome. Paul wants him to understand persecution is normal for the Christian life. This is what we should expect in life. Jesus told us that. Jesus prepared us. John 15, 20. He said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so you just need to mentally register this fact, filed away, so that one day you can really believe it, it can really sink in. The normal Christian life includes persecution for your faith. If we look back at the last 2,000 years of church history, the majority of faithful Christians suffered greatly because of their allegiance to Jesus. That is the norm. What we are experiencing is the anomaly. It is very unusual and it never lasts. Why? Because we follow a king whom the world crucified. Why would we expect that they would treat us well? Persecution is the norm in life for the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we have to remember. Persecution is normal. Second, somehow it's a gift. Somehow it is a gift, and, and that is the point in verse 29. I'll be honest, I do not like verse 29. It is a painful verse to read. To be accurate, I like when it says believe. I do not like when it says suffer. It's not fun. The verse is somehow saying that God grants or gifts you suffering persecution. What does that mean? Well, Paul is not saying that God creates persecution for his people. Absolutely not. Persecution is evil. It's sinful. God is never the author or creator of sin. So it's not that God creates persecution for Christians. But here's the issue. 
The God that we worship is all-powerful, right? So if he's all-powerful, what can he do? He can make persecution stop. He can easily. Boom, it's done. He could make it where no Christian ever suffers again. So why doesn't he? Why doesn't God bring persecution of Christians to an end? Well, that is the point of verse 28. Because somehow through persecution, people are drawn to faith. That's what verse 28 is saying. Somehow when when God's people not only are persecuted, but stand firm in the midst of persecution. When we don't strike back, when we love our enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us, when we stand faithful to Jesus, even when it costs us, the result is that the world sees proof that Jesus is who he said he claimed to be. Our faithfulness in the midst of persecution shows the world that they are on the wrong side of this thing. It warns them, hey, you need to embrace Jesus before it's too late. When Christians stand firm for Jesus in the midst of persecution, that is one of the greatest witnesses to the truth of what we believe. It draws men and women into the faith. God works incredible good through something as horrible as persecution. Now, that challenges us, though, because for most of us, we are not currently suffering persecution for our faith. And so that begs the question, how do we apply these verses? I mean, pretty much two-thirds of this passage is about how you stand strong when you're persecuted for your faith. So what do you do with that? Well, let's be really clear. The fact that we're asking that question is incredibly gracious of God and incredibly rare today. Many, if not most, of our fellow believers in Jesus around the world are suffering great persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. It surprises people to know that more people died for their commitment to Jesus in this last century than in any century beforehand, including Paul's. There's never been numerically as many martyrs for Christ as there have been recently. And so our brothers and sisters in other countries are suffering massively for their allegiance to Jesus. Many of us, though, are not. Many of us live lives that are relatively free of of persecution. We don't lose our jobs because we're Christians. We don't lose our social connections. We don't get thrown in jail because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so what, what do we do with these verses? Well, for those of us who are not currently being persecuted, as we read these verses, it should make us... It should make us think of two things. Two things should come to mind. First of all, if you're not currently persecuted, you shouldn't be shocked when that changes. That's the first thing that you need to be talking to yourself about. Persecution will come. Don't be shocked when it does. Sometimes I read the news about what's going on in our country, and I read an article about a Christian being ridiculed or or having some kind of legal repercussions because of his or her stand for Jesus. And I see all these Christians who are shocked. How can that happen in our country? And when I read that, I wonder, well, what were you expecting? Jesus told you, this is what happens when you follow him. The fact that for a long time, we weren't persecuted for our allegiance to Jesus, that's the shocking thing. That's not the norm. When this country persecutes us for following Jesus, we should say, yep, that's exactly what I expected to get in this life. Don't let it shock you. Don't let it make you angry. You get angry because you were expecting it somehow to go differently for you. No, Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll do it to you too. It's coming. So don't be shocked, don't be surprised, don't be angry when it does. That's the first thing. Second thing that should come to our minds when we are not being persecuted for our allegiance to Jesus is a question. Why? Why am I not being persecuted for Jesus? 
it's wonderful that I'm not, but I mean, I look at Peter and Paul and Jesus and they were all persecuted, so why not me? Well, there's two options. Number one, it could be because God is being very gracious to you. You are following Jesus, you are talking about Jesus, you are sharing Jesus, and yet God graciously spares you from persecution. If that's the, the case, then what should you do? You should give thanks. Anytime you get grace from God, give thanks. Tell God, God, thank you so much. I was not promised this. This is amazing. But it could be that you're not being persecuted for your faith because you're being cowardly. You know, out of fear of offending people, out of fear of making people uncomfortable, you're just never talking about Jesus. You're living closet Christianity. If that's the case, that's not okay. You cannot live worthy of the gospel and never share the gospel. Impossible. You have to be sharing it. And so if you look at your life and you say, well, I'm not being persecuted at work as a Christian because no one at work knows I'm a Christian. Well, that's not okay with God. You need to confess that to the Lord. That's sinful. And you need to pray that God would give you courage, that he would give you boldness. And that's how we're going to end this morning. We're going to spend some time in prayer, just like we have the last few times I've preached over here. I want to give you guys time to pray and ask God, about what we've talked about today. And so I'm going to lead you in a time of private prayer and I'm going to challenge you in two ways. So the first thing I'm going to challenge you to do is I want you to spend the first part of our time giving thanks to Jesus for the gift he has given to you. I want you to pray and give thanks for the gospel, give thanks for redemption and salvation and eternal life. I want you to pray and give thanks to Jesus. And in the midst of doing that, I also want you to ask Jesus to help you better appreciate the gospel because I'll confess it is so easy to take it for granted. I mean, first of all, you can't put your hands on it. Like a Ferrari, you can go touch that. You can see how beautiful it is. The gospel, I can't see it. I can't touch it. And so it's so easy to take it for granted. It's so easy to think nothing of it. I mean, we talk every week at church about it. How big a deal is it? I want you to pray and ask God to help you to be in awe of how wonderful the gospel is. So you're going to give thanks to Jesus and ask him to help you really appreciate the gospel. That's the first part of our prayer. The second part of our prayer, you're going to ask God to make you courageous. You're going to confess to God. If you have not been sharing the gospel out of fear or cowardice, you're worried you're going to offend somebody, I want you to confess that to him. And then I want you to ask God to make you bold. To make you courageous as a witness for Jesus who expects, who knows, persecution is going to come in this life just as it did for Jesus. It will come for me. I want you to pray that God would make you courageous and willing to suffer for the sake of sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us so that we could receive forgiveness and eternal life as an absolutely free gift. We praise you and thank you that we do not have to earn your love, that it is instead a gift freely offered through Jesus, your son. We thank you for that. We pray, God, help us to really appreciate how wonderful the gospel is. So we want to come before you now and just give you thanks for what you have given us through Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you so much for the gift of the gospel. It is such a good thing, and and we want people to know it. We know that it is the one and only hope of the world, but God, so often we are cowardly. We are fearful of offending people. We are fearful of persecution. And so 
we come before you now and, and we want to confess our fear to you. We want to confess our cowardice to you and we want to ask you to make us bold. We want to ask you through your spirit to make us courageous, that we would stand united, that we would stand for the gospel, that we would share it boldly with the world so that they can come to know your son, Jesus. Please make us courageous. Lord God, thank you that you know that we are weak, that we are sinful, and that we are fearful. We pray that through your Spirit you would make us courageous. We pray that through your Spirit you would make us strong. We pray that through your Spirit you would help us to stand firm with one mind sharing the good news of the gospel with everyone we can. We pray, Lord God, that you would use us even when persecution does come, that we would cling to you, Jesus, that we would face that persecution with grace, with love, with kindness, so that we might tell more people about your son Jesus and his outrageous love for us. We pray use this church family to lead many, many men and women into salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.